Men are such an important part of our picture. And it's not a zero-sum game where women win and men lose. It's men and women together stepping up to create change. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organisations, and communities. Today's guest is a prolific change agent. Elizabeth Broderick AO has brought together captains of industry, governments and defence force chiefs to address gender equality in Australia and throughout the globe. She's Australia's longest serving sex discrimination commissioner and she's led sweeping cultural reforms through the Australian Defence Force, through leading male champions of change, this incredible strategy to get the who's who of powerful men involved in tackling workplace gender inequality. Uh, And she's currently been leading a review into the residential colleges at universities, so looking at uh, the attitudes that exist there. On the 29th of September last year, she was appointed by the UN Human Rights Council as a special rapporteur and independent expert on the issue of discrimination against women in law and practice. She's a member of the AFP's advisory board and in 2016 was appointed an officer of the Order of Australia. It's going to be a really interesting conversation looking what it takes to change social norms, shift behaviour and ultimately see systemic change. Here's Liz. For me, your story is such an inspiring one. The impact that you've had on the Australian landscape when it comes to gender equality is extraordinary. And I've already featured multiple CEOs who have sung your praises in their podcast, talking <laughs> about the impact that you've had on them and the influence you've been able to garner. So thank you for, for making the time available today. Yeah, no problem at all. I really wanted to kick off by asking you, where did your passion for gender equality ignite? Was there a moment? Was there one moment? Probably not. I think where it started probably was being born an identical twin because when you're an identical twin, you have this innate sense of fairness. If your twin gets something that you don't get or you get something your twin doesn't get, you know, it's so kind of in your DNA that equality, fairness, they are core principles which will guide your life. I think maybe that's where it started when I think about it. And then probably my twin sister and I, when we were very little, we used to work at my mother and father's surgery. My dad was a nuclear medicine physician, actually. He brought that discipline here to Australia. And I still remember working in the surgery. And actually, it was just when I got my license and my parents thought it'd be a good idea for my sister and I to ferry the patients from my father's surgery to the hospital and back. And I still remember loading into the car this one woman who had suspected pulmonary embolus. So she had all the drips and everything. And we're driving along and she says to me, oh, so do you have any brothers or sisters? And I said, yeah, actually, I've got two sisters. I've got an identical twin and a younger sister. She looked at me, she said, oh, no, she said, your poor father, no one to carry on the family name. It was like, stop the car, dump her out. (laughs) I mean, I just couldn't believe that people thought like that. And that's probably the first 
inkling that I kind of had that, you know, the world was not necessarily even and level for men and women, boys and girls. And actually, you know what, I was going to do something to shift that picture. So, yeah, so that's really where I'd put it down to. And then a growing awareness because I went to universities in the 1980s and that was very much when the Sex Discrimination Act, the principal piece of gender equality law was coming into being in here in Australia. The women's movement was really moving along and it was in that environment that I was at university. So I think all those things together compounded to really make me care deeply about gender equality. When you look at a passion that big, like you've talked about, identifying that moment, wow, I want to do something about gender equality, I think a lot of people can feel that's almost paralyzingly enormous. Like where do I start? How do I chip away at trying to make an impact on that? Did you have an idea as to the path that you would take at that early stage, how you would make an impact? No, I really didn't have any idea at all. I I just knew that I wanted to have a base which would allow me to create change in the world. Now, for me, I actually went, when I went to uni, I did a double degree, but with computer science and law, which was the first time that ever introduced that degree. I didn't really know where it would lead me, but I thought maybe I could ride a wave of opportunity, particularly with the computer science, that would allow me to move more into an innovation and in that way create some positive change in the world. And I suppose all I've really done is followed the things that I'm really interested in because I think when you do that, you can't help but be good at them because you're so passionate about them and that's really all I've done. There's so many aspects of the things that you've done that I want to touch on. And and the first I really wanted to ask you about is your role as Sex Discrimination Commissioner. What did you learn in your time in that role about breaking down structural and social barriers? It's interesting because I think I went into that with a couple of what I realise now are misconceptions. I went in believing that it was women that were going to change this picture and it was the collective action of women that's delivered the rights that we have today. I absolutely acknowledge and honour that. But I thought that all I had to do was really open my address book, all my contacts, leverage women's voices, and that that was what was going to create change. So I think that was one misconception. The second misconception I had was that just having strong laws meant that we would have a gender equal nation. I hadn't really turned my mind to the fact that you can have the strongest laws you know, in the world. You can have gender equality built into the constitution of a nation. But by itself, that's not going to make any difference. That actually it's the way people live their lives. It's the social norms that exist. Those are the things that will determine whether it's a gender equal nation or not. So I think what I came to understand is you need not just strong laws, but you need laws that are implemented properly. You need social norms that reflect equality. And you need good education in schools and even preschools about gender equality so that men and women together can do anything that they want to do. That It's to challenge this notion that only women make good carers. For example, we need to believe that caring is everyone's business. So that needed to shift. The other thing around the women was that it is the collective action of women that's got us the rights that you know we have in Australia today and I believe across the world. But I also believe now, and it was my time as Sex Discrimination Commissioner that really convinced me of this, that men are such an important part of our picture. And it's not a zero-sum game where women win and men lose. It's men and women together stepping up to create change. Because the fact is, most of the institutions in our nation, they've been designed by men 
largely run by men. And if we want to create change, we need men to step up beside women and create change as well. So what I came to understand is that it's men taking the message of gender equality to other men that will really shift power in the system. And when I look at gender equality, what is it? It's really a redistribution of power in organisations, in families and indeed in nations. I want to pick up on that second misconception, the laws will do it, because I think this is an interesting challenge I see leaders struggling with in a whole variety of different contexts. The rhetoric's easy, uh, the, the cultural shift, the change in behaviour, that is so hard. In fact, we can often underestimate just how hard that is. What did you learn about how to shift social norms, how it is we actually get people to start behaving differently? Yeah, I think we all behave in ways which I suppose are congruent with how we were brought up, the experiences that shaped our beliefs and our values and therefore, you know, how we act. And I think if we want people to, you know, change how they behave, what we have to do, firstly, we have to open them up to the possibility of change. Now, there's a number of things there. Firstly, we have to recognise their contribution to what exists today. Mm-hmm. Because so many institutions that are so strong today, and that's because they, those institutions were built by men, are men with good intentions. So I think, you know, just to run in with a case for reform is not the way to go. What I believe is you go in, you honour and acknowledge people's contribution to what exists today, but then you have to show them that the future is going to be very different than the past, um, that they still have a strong part in that future, but it will require them to change their behaviour. Now, the most, I think, effective strategy that I know of after working in the space for quite some time to do that is to actually help people understand what what the impact of the current culture is on individuals that they care about. So either in their family or in their workplace. So the way to do that is through personal storytelling. So to create the conditions that make it safe for people to tell about their experiences. What was it like growing up as a young woman in an all-male team, either on a trading floor or in a resources company or indeed in a law firm? What was that experience like? What was good about it? What wasn't good and what could be different? And what could I as a leader do differently that would have made that experience much more easier for that individual? Because I think when you get those moments and nuggets of truth, that's when you link into not just people's heads, but you link into their hearts. And that's really important, engaging people's hearts for change. What did you find to be the hardest part of your role as Sex Discrimination Commissioner? There's a lot of hard part. I mean, there's was hard emotional parts. So just really understanding the enormity of, for example, the issues around domestic and family violence, sexual violence. I mean, After listening to thousands and thousands of stories, and you are the keeper of many, many stories, you could come to a place where you could lose faith in the possibility of change. And you could say, look, why do we have domestic and family violence here in Australia? Why is it still happening? Why can't I stop it happening? Does my work matter? Do I matter? Mm. And you can go down in a path like that and When that happens, you become less and less effective. And to be honest, you become overwhelmed by the enormity of some of the challenges that are facing us. So the thing that I always loved was to have, or to do a number of things. One was to really hold what I call my compassionate self. 
it's a part of me that's really the deeply emotional self that feels other people's pain and suffering. To really hold that, but to have beside that a part of me that's my strategic self. That's the part of me that actually draws on the compassionate self. So I draw on that emotion and I use it to advocate for change. So when I step up to create change either in an organisation, a nation or indeed now in a global system, it's don't mess with me because I don't just come as Liz Broderick. I come as Liz Broderick fueled by the thousands of stories of inequality that I've witnessed over That's powerful years. It's really powerful. And instead of allowing that emotion to drag me down, I've learned, and it is a work in progress still, but I've learned to use that emotion to power a really strong strategic response. I love that. Uh, I was going to ask you, the work you're doing now with the UN, certainly the work that you pioneered with the Male Champions of Change Initiative, was really one of the first examples I can recall of actively trying to get the sectors to come together, going, you know, we can't do this just as civil society. We can't do this just from the policy levers you're talking about with the laws. We need to make sure we're getting all the right parties to the table and we're engaging perhaps those who hadn't previously felt welcome at the table. I'd Mm -hmm. love to hear a bit about where the origin for that idea came from and how open people were to it in those initial conversations. Yeah, it is interesting because I'm seeing it even now in my role, you know, as Special Rapporteur in the UN, that the things that I took for granted, such as that the private sector is such an important partner in change, or indeed that men have a role in promoting gender equality across the world, I just see them as natural assumptions, but they're still both of those assumptions are hugely controversial in the global space. In many, the minds of many women's rights activists a private sector's the enemy. Why would we engage with them? Men are the enemy. This is women's territory. Why would we engage with them? And I fundamentally believe that until you bring all sectors together and work out where there is a common purpose, where there's shared value, common ground, that's when you really build a strong platform for reform. And to exclude a sector like, say, take the private sector, they're one of the most powerful voices across the world. And yet there are some unethical private sector organisations. But in my experience, there's a lot of incredibly ethical ones. I mean, private sector is just made up of individuals, many of whom want to use the work they're doing in the private sector to actually create positive change in the world as well. So why wouldn't we engage with them? Mm. And I suppose right from early on, particularly in my term as Sex Discrimination Commissioner, I was able to bring employer groups together with the union movement, together with civil society, together with government and indeed the human rights advocates and work out, instead of working out where the differences are, let's step up from that and let's work out where the common ground is. Uh, We may not agree on all the detail, but we do all agree that we need a more gender equal world. We do all agree, if I take the issue of working parents, that paid parental leave is a positive thing for most nations. So try and work out where those common agreements and beliefs are and then move out from that position rather than start from our differences and try to move and navigate the other way. And I think when you, you know, you can step in the shoes of someone in the private sector or a man who cares deeply about gender equality and has daughters, you know, we can put ourselves in those situations. We know that those people are equally likely to want to create change. They want to step up with us 
So instead of alienating, my strategy is always to bring them on board to create change. One of the things I really liked about what you did with Male Champions of Change that I thought really set the initiative up to be successful was that the pledges were really pragmatic. They were things that were really tangible and easy to determine, am I doing it or not, and to check progress against. I was wondering, firstly, how important was that, just the pragmatism of the action you were asking people to take? But also, how did you arrive at the agreement on what that group would do, the, the actual choices as to the collective action? So if I just look at the really practical actions, I absolutely agree. I know there are so many well-intentioned men. They care about gender equality. They just don't know what to do. Mm. So that's the reason why very early on we started with some very practical actions like the panel pledge so that as a really senior man, I agree that I won't speak at any event where there's not at least some representation of women. And that's been transformative. It doesn't cost anything, mm. but it actually it makes a place for the visibility of women because when you're the keynote speaker and you say, I'm not coming to speak at your conference unless you've got more women, then the conference organiser actually goes out and searches harder for talented women in those particular areas. So I think those types of things, and we've been able to extend the panel pledge out to the panel pitch, don't come and pitch to me unless you're coming with a, a panel which has both men and women on it to make your pitch. So there's a whole lot of extensions you can do from a simple strategy that costs absolutely nothing. Another one there is 50-50, if not, why not? So you look at every process in your organisation from the graduate intake through to the promotion scheme through to the talent development scheme, your board, and you're asking the question, if women make up 50% of the world's population, 50% of my organisation, why am I not seeing 50% in the graduate intake on the board in the you know, talent development program? So they're really practical. But as to how to get agreement on what strategies we should pursue, I think initially it was me suggesting in strategies to the male champions of change. But what's been so fantastic more recently, given we've now got 160 of the most influential men across Australia from sport to the command and control to government to private sector everywhere in between is that the men themselves are much bolder than I ever imagined they would be so a lot of the work that we're doing now it starts with the ideas that come from the male champions themselves we might mold them and formulate them in a way that they can be scalable where we can test and experiment with different strategies but overwhelmingly now the ideas are coming from the men Themselves. It's great to hear that progress. It's really good. And, you know, we, we, particularly with the Me Too campaign at the minute. I was going to ask you about that. We're meeting, we've got a whole range of male champions of change meetings in February. So we'll be really talking about Me Too campaign, what men's role is as active bystanders, having a really honest and open conversation. Because one of the things I'd say is I think it's important that we create the safe spaces, and that's what Male Champions of Change is about, a safe space for men, not just to learn about strategies to progress gender equality, but also to ask any questions that they want. So I would imagine that there'd be, you know, some who will be feeling fearful. They don't know how to engage in the conversation about Me Too. You know, there may even be men who in the past, because of the organisations they've grown up in, they've seen and tolerated behaviours, mm. which here in 2018 will be no longer tolerated. And I think that's really important that we have those conversations 
and that as male champions, they know how to engage with their own staff and employees on these issues. When you look at the Me Too movement, there seems like an extraordinary groundswell of momentum around so many aspects of of gender equality and women's rights at the moment. And then you look at the statistics that we continue to see come out around pay equity and gender equality and equal participation, and you go, how is it still that many decades till we're going to see the world look 50-50, as you were talking about? How do you seize momentum in moments like this and see it translate into a step change in progress? You're right. I mean, I think how you seize the moment is to engage as many people as you can in the conversation because with Me Too, I'd say for every one of the male champions, every one of the people, men and women that I deal with, no one wants their daughter to be a Me Too. I don't want my daughter to be Me Too. So what am I going to do? So we try to move from the conversation and sheet it back to individual accountability to create change because every one of us can play a part in creating change. And I suppose one of the things that I work on is to be suggesting ideas as to what that change might look like. Now, it might look like small change in a a family situation. And let's face it, if women don't have equality in the family, they'll never have equality in work or in parliament. And I heard a beautiful story, Holly. I was in Pakistan recently. I'm traveling a lot in my new role, but I met an amazing man who'd come in from quite a dangerous region, the Fatah region, disputed area on the border with Afghanistan. And he was broadcasting to Taliban and tribal leaders out in that area. And he was incorporating gender equality content into his broadcast. So send your daughters to work, don't beat your wives, you know, really practical messages. And when I said to him, well, how did the universe deliver you to us? (laughs) He said to me, look, I, I grew up in a really poor family. I had seven sisters and one brother. He said, my parents chose to send my brother and I to school. And when we were old enough walking to our school one day, we made a pact between us We agreed that if we ever had any influence or power in the world, we would use it to empower women so that our sisters could also have a chance at an education. Wow, that gave me goosebumps. How amazing. It was such incredible. So I think you can find moments of inspiration everywhere and it's those moments that remind us that gender equality goes to the heart of who we are and how we live and that every one of us can do something to create a more gender equal world. What do you feel like we're focusing on too much and what do you think we're not talking about enough? Well, I think at the minute, and I've just come back from the UN last week from Geneva and I've talked to different nation states about different positions, but what we're seeing is at global level in any event quite a, a regression of nations in relation to women's rights. Women's rights seem to be progressive rights, particularly with the resurgence of fundamentalist religion, nationalism, populism, you know, many forces of change which are actually taking women's rights back in many nations. And I think at the minute we need to be talking more about, no, women's rights are human rights you know, there's something that every one of us are born with. We don't have to do anything to get them. They happen because we are human and, of course, because we're women. And we need to just keep on re-establishing that point because what I'm seeing, particularly in certain nations, is there's a whole mantra around protection of the family and preserving traditional values. And that argument is being put at odds with women's rights 
what I want to do and what we are trying to do is to help nations and individuals understand that unless women have equality in the family, we won't be able to protect the family. I mean, protection of a family is about equality within the family. It's about economic resilience. It's about women who can work and care. It's about social cohesion. All those things happen when you have women's equality. So I think instead of those two forces being oppositional, we need to show that the both of them are very complementary. And it's another reason that as a world, as a globe, we need to hang on to the advances that we've um, we've seen in women's rights over the, the last few decades. That's yeah. such a good point. It, yeah, because we are really at a crossroads, I think, Holly, and we have to decide, you know, and there, there's some nations which are progressive, and I put Australia in that category, New Zealand, Canada, nation, but there are some nations for which women's rights seems to be optional and in times of, as I said before, religious resurgence, a whole range of other things, they will travel backwards. And we're seeing that in many parts of the globe. And part of what I worry about too is um, not letting complacency and I guess almost this assumption that progress and advancement in the economy is going to naturally, as a byproduct, create progress for women. When I look at the data, I was reading a piece this morning on automation and the fact that the expectation is going to put more women out of jobs than men. When you look at some of the bias that's being built into algorithms developed in new technologies in Silicon Valley, you understand that we need to be as alert as ever on making sure that we continue to evolve this conversation in line with the way the economic, political and social landscapes being adapted by technology too. I couldn't agree more. I mean, and even if you look at the digital divide, you know, there's something like 400 million less mobile smartphones in the hands of women than men. Wow. I mean, and when you look at the future, the changing nature of work, the impact of artificial intelligence, we need to really understand how that's going to affect women because a lot of the jobs that will be automated will be traditional women's work. So I absolutely agree with you. This assumption that I'll that rising economies will naturally move women up. We thought that when we thought if we educated women more, they would naturally move into positions of leadership. They would naturally, they'd be promoted in their work. So they would just naturally advance. And we've seen that that's absolutely not the case. I mean, even with the achievement of Millennium Development Goals and we saw the world lift in terms of women's education, particularly primary education, but even into secondary education, But now we know that just having achievement in education by itself is not enough because of the way workplaces are designed, because of the way the whole system's designed. Once again, it's a system designed by men for men and it's largely run by men. So unless we look to redesign the system and make it a system where men and women can thrive equally, women will never have access to the same economic opportunities as men. And I really believe, particularly in developed nations in any event, women's economic empowerment is absolutely the the critical factor. I mean, reproductive rights, yes, I mean, if I just look at Australia, maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, very important. But, you know, a lot of gains have been made in that area where we're really missing is in women's economic power. And you just need to look at the difference in retirement savings. Oh, yeah. Women women have half the retirement savings of men. 
And it's not because they've sat on their backside. It's because they do the lion's share of work in unpaid caring work. So how do we value unpaid caring work? And for me, that's really about shifting the social norms, which say here in Australia that caring is women's work. No, caring's everyone's business. And we need to really move ahead strongly on that. I want to ask two personal questions. The first is really around with with working on such long-term change initiatives, how do you keep yourself and how do you keep the people you're working with motivated? Because it can be, as you mentioned, really draining and really challenging at a variety of points. You're right. It can be so challenging. Just even in my small team, we do each week what we call celebrating success. And we do that because a lot of the change that we see, because we're doing a lot of work in cultural change, particularly in residential colleges at university or command and control environments, you know, military policing, those changes can take literally a decade. So we just every week we remind ourselves what things shifted or have the potential to shift in the future because of something that we did this week, because of a conversation that we had, because of a new insight that we gleaned, because of a new opportunity that we identified. And I just think that we're keeping on to remind ourselves that that's really important. Then we often go back and review them and we say, oh my gosh, look how much has changed in six months. But you're right. If you look at it from a day-to-day basis, you can think that nothing is moving, that change is glacial. So the other thing I think we have to do is just reframe a bit. Periodically, I try and step out of the detail and look at change from a historical perspective. I remind myself about the life my grandmother led the life my mother led, the fact that I could have a really senior role in public life with two young children and indeed now the life my daughter leads. I mean, she's so much more empowered at her age. She's 20 now than I ever was then. And I remember that every group of women is more empowered than the previous group and that's what matters. So it's keeping the focus on that as well. But there's so many moments of incredible joy in this work as well as distressing, deeply sad moments. And just even recently, you know, when you get your first female ambassador into the Holy See, for example, which is a bit of a tough gig, I'd have to say. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Your first female fast jet pilot or AFL match official or, you know, there's really great moments of excitement as well where we can all line up behind that, be proud of that. But also know that when you look at firsts, That means there's never, ever in the history of that sector or role ever been a a woman in the previous hundreds of years. So whilst it's great to get a first, we need to make sure there's a critical mass of women coming up behind that, that individual. And I love that because that for me is such a part of why I get so fired up about making sure I'm paying forward an even greater reality for the next generation to honour sort of the shoulders of the giants of the predecessors who've given me the opportunity I can enjoy in my generation. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's really important. And same for me, that I come and I can do the work that I do because someone before me, most likely a woman, but possibly a man, someone I've never met, will never know, but that they spoke out for women's rights. That's why I have the life that I have today. And for that, I'm immensely grateful. The other one I wanted to ask how you deal with, I've been fortunate to observe and interact with you, your work for some time now. And one of the things I've always wondered, I guess, is you a lot of the time have found yourself in really challenging work environments. You are coming up against vested interest. You're coming up against people who don't want the truth to come to light. 
You've been subjected to a lot of personal attacks, smear campaigns, you name it. There's been an extraordinary amount of things you've had to endure to do your work and to do the good work that you're doing. I know you mentioned before the importance of that purpose and passion and anchoring you, but pragmatically, how did you build the resilience? How did you get through those tough moments? Yeah, and it's such a great question because it is hard and it's becoming increasingly hard because there's more and more media scrutiny, Mm. um, I think, on individuals who are speaking out, particularly on what seem to be progressive human rights. So I think to say that you can just sail through it would be misleading because it is hurtful. When people are just saying really just stuff that's totally wrong about you, particularly when it's out in the media and whatever, it's, it's deeply hurtful. But what I've learned to do, I suppose, is to really focus on self-care. I think self-care is so important. And I think also often as women, we put ourselves last as mothers, as workers, as advocates. And really the shift we need to make is in some circumstances, you know what, we need to put ourselves first, even if it's in the service of a greater cause, because really that's the ultimate act of women's empowerment. Mm. So in many nations I go to, there's a focus and a mantra which is really being well physically and mentally is the ultimate act of political defiance. And so I'm going to damn well do that. So for me... I like that. I've never heard it framed that way. Mentally and physically. I mean, physically, of course, for me, it's about walking and the fun things that I love doing exercise-wise and just hanging out with my family. They're very nurturing, my sisters, my friends. And the mental part of it also is, for me, it's about mindfulness and meditation. And I've really um, spent quite a deal of time invested in that over the last five years, for example, just taking time out to just quieten myself, quieten all the noise about, oh, we could have done this, we could have said that differently, or no, just to come back and remember that who I am is enough, Mm. that I have everything right here, right now to create the change I want to see in the world and that just to notice how I feel, particularly what I call my body wisdom, so to notice where my emotions are sitting, do I feel angry, do I feel irritated, joyful, happy, just to be with that emotion and know that I can be totally reactive So I can react from a place of anger or whatever, or I can choose to come into a conversation differently. And that's what I've learned to do, particularly over the last few years, because I do a lot of facilitation of large meetings, whether that's with ambassadors and leaders of nation states or indeed down at an organisational level, and where there'll be totally diametric views. But to be able to respect that all views are valid, provided they're put respectfully, And then to be able to work with that and know, just knowing from my body wisdom how I feel about it, but choose how I come back into the conversation to facilitate the meeting. And I think that's quite liberating when you notice, you notice where the energy is sitting in the room and you choose not to let it upset you, particularly in deeply hostile meetings. So you've got those protective, I mean, I cover myself in white light I remind myself I'm powerful, I'm influential, and I will be heard. I mean, just a variety of techniques that I've got in my toolbox that I pull out and use at times like that. When you're in those hostile moments, Mm. particularly when it's a key domino that needs to tip in the situation you're dealing with, but they are hostile and they're closed-minded, how do you tackle that? It's hard. I try and use humour. 
Okay. And also a personal human connection because I think when you can connect at a deeply human level, then you can help shift people's ideas. So stories, humour, connection at a human level and never disrespecting any view because I, I believe that the work I do and even you look at the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, sitting at the heart of it is dignity, mm. equality and respect. And in all the interactions, I try to hand dignity back, not strip it, never strip dignity from anyone in that interaction, hand it back, be deeply respectful, but actually, you know, suggest that there might be another way that we could look at this particular issue. And it's hard because some of the issues I'm dealing with now, particularly in the global area, are just so politicised, so hard I'm thinking there the issues of surrogacy, the issues of the criminalisation of prostitution, the issues of termination of pregnancies and whatever. They're hard issues and they're emotional issues where people have quite a strong emotional response. I see my role there is to bring the emotion back Mm -hmm. and just try and have a deeply respectful conversation which respects the human rights and particularly of women. I'm so grateful for your time. I've got two questions I'd like to ask you before we wrap up. For the aspiring change agents or the people that are sitting listening to this conversation, thinking about how they can be more effective in driving change, what's the best bit of advice you could give them? I think probably the best bit of advice, and if I think back to myself, when I was a young lawyer and I knew I wanted to do something as well as a practice of law, I wanted to do something different to that. I wanted, I was really intent on, you know, creating change. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll never be able to do that because I go to seminars and whatever, and there'd be extraordinary leaders, you know, talking about this and that and their good work in the world. And I thought, well, you have to be extraordinary to create change. And I think for change agents starting out, just to remember, you don't have to be extraordinary. I seriously never have been. But what I lived by, the mantra I lived by was do what you can when you can. That's how you change the world. And it's so true. I've used it in everything that I've ever done. I never set out to do the work that I do now. I never for imagine, a minute would have imagined that I would have found myself in global meetings with nation states and whatever. But I've never done anything magical. All I've done is done what I can when I can. And that's how I've changed the world. Because I think if you're always grasping for the next opportunity and whatever, you can wear yourself out. And also it's bringing back to the mindfulness. You can miss the great opportunities. I was just thinking that. that. Yeah. The moment. yeah, in the moment. So you've got to be open to what's coming towards you in the moment more than out grasping for things. So I think, yeah, know that who you are is enough. Now you've probably got everything you need to change the world and do what you can when you can. That's how you create change. I love that piece of advice. I almost feel like we were over-biased towards scale at the moment and we underestimate those small actions in the minute, that opportunity to intervene, make a comment, do something in a day-to-day context and the ripple effect that can have. That's exactly right. And I do think, especially in Western cultures, we're so focused on doing that we've forgot about the being part of it. So I'm trying to shift that because being matters. That time for thinking, that time for self-reflection, for meditation, mindfulness, whatever it is, being with nature, silence, that being part matters. And I just noticed more and more the really impressive 
women that I meet from different African nations, Indigenous elders here in Australia, the beautiful women that I've worked with, they're not frenetically doing, they're not so busy. Actually, they're taking time to be, they have presence, and that in itself is what's creating change in the world. That's beautiful. For those who are listening today, what would be the call to action you'd like to leave them with? The call to action would be, I I think you don't have to start really big. All of us will have spheres of influence, however small or large. But if I look at people who are parents, for example, so the call to action to parents, people who are guardians involved in the care of children, it would be to remember that who we are and how we conduct ourselves as parents has a huge influence on our children. So we set the expectation of our daughters, the attitudes of our sons, uh, what we model they're going to take into their later life. So my call to action there would be to model gender equality in the family, in the home, in the division of unpaid work, in exploring some of the gender stereotypes that we might just needlessly accept. So that would be my call to action in the family. I think if you move it out into people who have influence in business, in the private sector, for example, it would be to build gender diversity as core to the business strategy, focus on men and flexibility, not just women and flexibility, never discriminate against a pregnant woman. There'd be a whole list of things there, but really the ability to ensure that both men and women can equally thrive in the business. And then I think if I was calling out to men, men are such an important part of creating a gender equal world. You know, they have mothers, they have daughters, they have partners and wives. So the love and the respect and the way they treat women in every aspect of their life is so important to the progress that we need to see in creating gender equal nations. That would be my call out to them and to them, to the women and many of them who are already changing the world, who are really strong advocates for gender equality. Just keep on doing what you're doing. Raise a generation of empowered young women because that's what we need to see if we're going to move forward. What an inspiring note to finish on. Liz Broderick, I can't thank you enough. I I feel so grateful as a young woman in Australia to know that you are out there leading this conversation, driving the change that you're involved with. And I feel very lucky as an Australian too to think that you're leading this space internationally and representing our country so well as we seek to create an even more diverse and inclusive world. So thank you for your time today and thank you for the work you're doing. Thanks so much, Holly. Great to chat with you. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me. Thank <laughs> you.